0: Good afternoon to clients of Rockefeller, our Rockefeller team, and other friends of Rockefeller, and welcome to the fourth in our series of special client events during this historic time. This is our second consecutive session featuring prominent leaders who are also directors of Rockefeller Capital Management. I'm very pleased to welcome Andrea Jung, Paul Miners, and Marty Mannion to our discussion today. We will focus on the current environment across a broad cross-section of areas, including the consumer and retail sectors, small business, asset management, private equity, and the macro geopolitical and health issues relevant to all. Andrea Jung is president and CEO of Grameen America, the fastest growing microfinance organization in the U.S. The former chairman and CEO of Avron Products, Andrea is the longest serving female CEO in Fortune 500 history. She is a longtime champion of women's issues and Grameen has invested more than $1 billion in women's small businesses across the country. Paul Miners is chair and partner of Sevian Capital and is a former minister in the United Kingdom's treasury and a past member of the court of the Bank of England. In addition to his leadership in the UK government, Paul has extensive private sector experience, both as CEO and as a board member of leading corporations and investors in the UK, Europe, Asia, and the US. Marty Mannion, Chairman and Senior Advisor at Summit Partners. Marty has been instrumental in building and leading Summit since 1985. During that time, Marty has led investments in And served as a board member of more than 35 companies. He is one of the preeminent experts in the private equity industry in the United States. So I'm going to start with Andrea. Andrea, good afternoon and welcome.
1: Hey Greg, how are you? Great to be with you.
0: Great, thanks for being here. Uh, Andrea, uh, maybe we can start uh, in a space that you've known for really your whole career. Um, but also your your other board memberships, including Apple and Unilever, leave you uh, tremendous insight into consumer behavior. Uh, Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, what you think is going to change in the near term and over time from a consumer standpoint, and maybe also touch on what might not change. So, you know, so many people are focused on what will happen as uh, as things start to return to normalcy. So uh, we can get some of your thoughts on that.
1: Sure, um, well, certainly it's been uh, a challenging and interesting time for consumer companies, n- no different than all industries. And I think, you know, everybody is sort of got a t- focus. One is sort of what are the urgent priorities dealing with the pandemic, um, you know, business in this moment? And then uh, very importantly, you know, how do these companies think about the future normal? I mean, you know, what what is going to stay the same? Uh, as it was pre-COVID-19, and, and what's going to change for a period of time, or what's going to change permanently, and I, I think that's just what's on every management team's uh, mind, and, and is taking up uh, this sort of bifurcated approach to the near, the now, and then, the, and then what's next. Um, you know, in some of the companies, the consumer companies, it, that is a word I would use. It's a very bifurcated. Uh, behaviors, you've got just even from brands um, in in Unilever, you know, just obviously things that get affected by shelter at home, you know, outdoor ice cream sales. I mean, you know, way, way down, but then hand sanitizers and soap way, way up. So, you know, it's not like everything sort of tracking about the same. I think you've got some categories and uh, some channels that are really winning. And some that are having an extraordinarily harder time. Um, you know, I'm also on the board of a, a e-commerce home furnishings company, which has just seen comps um, extraordinarily strong through this period. If you think about it, people are home, um, people are working from home, and kind of trying to figure out what they need for their their home office. Uh, people are cooking, people are redoing their kitchen, reorganizing their closets, and so in a lot of the categories that they have been in where there has been a you know a fast adoption to e-commerce. This has accelerated, it, Greg, to you know a, a different dimension, and I think that that's one of the things we're going to see. Um, I think that great brands uh, and great companies will continue to do well, but how they're being sold and where they're being sold could change dimensionally. Uh, I, I think um, from a consumer point of view, I think it's going to be tough for a lot of the traditional retailers unless service and experience differentiate them. Uh, You know, I'm biased, I'm on the Apple board, but, you know, I certainly think when they do open the stores again, worldwide, you know, they will continue to do well. But there's an experience to that. Uh, If you're buying just a commodity and now you've been used to purchasing it online, whether it's Amazon or any of these e commerce sites and that's how you've been doing it not just for a week but now for months Um, and you understand its effectiveness and its efficiency you know do you go back or how fast do you go back to an okay retail experience but you know nothing special so i think those are the things that really have to be thought through because um, those behaviors some of them may shift permanently into more and more online purchases Um, products themselves you know, I think some of the companies that are, you know, look at how much we're all using our devices. Um, we're streaming more. People even want to pay by phone now because you don't even have to touch a credit card, hand it over to somebody, and you don't have to use cash. So all of these behaviors consumer-wise were happening, but I think this has been a catapult, and I think that those are going to stay.
0: Yeah, those are two things that uh, th- that you just threw out at the end there as part as evidence of the whole thing cash, which was being used certainly by uh, millennials and Generation Z, hardly at all. Um, and then, you know, walking into a retail establishment, uh, you know, we, we might not see you know, that the the trajectory was was down on, on both fronts, but it, it maybe could be step function down even after this. You know I don't know if you want to expand on that a little more.
1: Yeah, I think that you, we were already seeing trends, you know, pre-March, uh, longer term trends of you know, bricks and mortar versus online, and the acceleration of one and the deceleration of another. So we've been watching that. Um, does this crisis just, you know, put momentum positively and negatively on that trend line? I mean, and, and I think many people think it will, unless there is a reimagination, right? So I, I think it, it's just going to accelerate um, and and catalyze a a growing divide because of of efficiency and because of uh, convenience. And now, I mean, we are living in the, you know, my mother used to say, you know, that's the is the mother of invention. But my belief is that we're looking at a period is that necessity now has become a mother of adoption. And I think that people are going to stay with behaviors that they have now found uh, a more convenient, whether it's grocery shopping, Peapot, I mean, all of the. So you're going to buy that maybe the same things, maybe not as much hand sanitizer, but how you buy them. Could be permanently changed. I think we all have to look at that.
0: That's really uh, interesting and I think spot on. Um, if we shift gears a little bit, because you've got great insight into entrepreneurs from your position as the CEO of Grameen, and I know uh, you've told me you, you do this weekly pulse check across you know tens of thousands of entrepreneurs. Um, can you provide some insight into how small business is doing, how they're coping, and, and the efficacy of the U.S. federal government's programs, uh, uh, helping hopefully lots of them who have good business models and just need to get through this stay in business?
1: Yes, I mean, uh, we do have a, a weekly pulse check. I mean, we have uh, tens and tens of thousands. We have, I think, almost 60,000 entrepreneurs uh, across 15 cities. So, we wanted to do this pulse check and an all member survey every single week just to get that real time feed on the street um, measurement of what what's going on and when you ask you know how are they coping it, it's really tough we I, I think we're all watching on the news you know uh, obviously there's so much health coverage but the other coverage is obviously a lot of the small businesses and you know there, there's dire predictions of the percent of small businesses that are going to uh, not make it through the next eight to twelve weeks um, without more assistance. But you know, when when we look at our survey, and then I'll speak about the um, the CARES Act and the PPP federal government program in a second. But uh, you know, we we are seeing an, in some interesting statistics. Not surprising, but you know, eighty percent of the businesses are being significantly impacted, and that crosses both services as well as products. Um, services probably hit a little bit more, and when I say that, I mean small restaurants. Salons, you know, nail salons, hair salons. I mean, I know all of us <laughs> want to get our hair cut, but these these people have gone from 100 to zero. Um, and so, you know, because of shelter at home and uh, social distancing mandates, and this is true for every, you know every single of the 15 cities that you know we are surveying every every week, uh, those businesses are part of hit. You know, landscapers, not so much because I think they can still work outdoors, but just about every service business is having an enormous toll of just being able to uh, service anybody. They have to wait. They're sitting by and waiting. Um, if you had a food business, you had to throw out all your inventory uh, once you were mandated that you couldn't remain open unless you pivoted to some takeout and delivery. But if you're not a, you know, a big restaurateur with a lot of those capabilities, uh, it, it's been it's been tougher. So. Many of them, because um, they're living in ur- you know, urban places like New York City and they're low income in our, in our case, lower income, small business owners, they've been affected. I think we have 30% of, of, of our, their family or someone has been affected by COVID-19 itself. So that, that puts on additional stress, uh, fear, anxiety, um, and isolation, quarantining on top of not being able to go out and find customers. So it's a, it's a really tough Log right now for small businesses. Um, The government program was really tough uh, for most in the first tranche. Uh, The $360 billion uh, went to 1.6 million out of the 30 million small businesses. So you had, you know, 28.4 million minimally uh, small businesses who just weren't able to access it. And you know, if you didn't have a prioritized account. With one of the major bank lenders, where you could apply for PPP, I mean, you were pretty much shut out of it. And that, I mean, we've all read about some of the unintended organizations that received the money um, and have now given it back. But, but a lot of businesses just didn't receive it. The second that is hopefully being, I guess, authorized by the president today is, you know, another two at 320 billion. Uh, there is a piece of this set aside for really smaller businesses and a lot of without taking everybody through it you know uh, uh, desire to make sure that the smaller businesses with you know 100 or less employees or even 50 or less employees are going to get covered this time i have a feeling that it's going to be you know two days max before this entire tranche is used up again so i think there are going to be more stimulus packages for sure for small businesses. I can envision a third and a fourth, and we need to in order to, I mean, really save Main Street because um, th- there are just going to be tens of millions still that do not have, you know, a- enough to get them through this, and they're staring down eight weeks of working capital um, needs. June 30th is a long time.
0: You no, know, it's I, I had I had not heard the statistic a week. Away from you you having it uh, of 1.6 million small businesses were able to tap the first tranche out of 30 million small businesses you can see uh, with with that with those numbers how you know 25 million Americans are out of work I mean the federal government has got in this tranche and going forward to do better or the the numbers are, are just going to become staggering right yeah, yeah. It,
1: there's no question and I think that this additional half trillion is is, no, it's good, it's important, but I don't see this being the end of it, which creates a whole other set of issues that, you know, I think, you know, what's the regulatory and environment going to be for businesses? Because the more bailout and the more help, right, that that, that, uh, the government is going to be paying for, which it needs to, you know, what's going to be the regulatory environment. So I think there's a lot of unknowns, but I, I think it would be fair to assume that, we're going to be working in a different environment going forward
0: yeah so a- andrew you've, you've had so much experience with small business and in, in, uh and in, and in, in, uh, you know for a number of years now and it, and it really was the engine of growth uh you know i think people are unaware that 30 million small businesses with 60 million people employed that's half the american workforce roughly so the you know the the 10 years of economic growth and the 22 million jobs created a lot of it was here so my question for you, though, isn't to just go through all that. It's to say, you know, going forward, uh, can we see a snapback uh, again? Because you're on the ground with a lot of these businesses. Uh, hopefully, the government can get a number of them, a lot of them, through. Uh, you know, can we see a return to a thriving small business part of the American economy in the next six to 12 months?
1: I think it's tough to say six because I think this is a little bit different. We do have experience, Greg, in in 08 and 09. Uh, the last economic crisis you know that all of us remember and the snapback was really fast because you're talking about um people who it's not like they're unemployed and they now need to stand and you know find a new job they have um they have businesses they're sole proprietors in some cases and and they've got to you know pay that rent so they're entrepreneurial uh, and aggressive. And in that case, we actually did see a, you know, a, a, a relatively fast snapback for for particularly our women-owned small businesses. The complicated thing here is is the health aspect of it and the social distancing requirements that are still going to be in place even when cities open up. So I think that they will be resilient. I think there will be recovery because my experience from an optimistic point of view is that, you know, many of these entrepreneurs, um, it is their livelihood. It is, you know, rent and food on the table and they they are anxious to get back as soon as the city of Chicago or the state of New York or, you know, Miami says it's okay to go back out. What they're gonna have to get used to though are, you know, if you are a restaurant and you're only allowed to have a third of the capacity of tables, You know can you can you survive like that you know what does your p l look like if you can only take on a third of the clientele um you know so many examples like that i mean if you can open your salon that is fine but if you can only have a certain number of people in how does that productivity change so these are these are first time ever uh things that we've got to imply into the snapback uh and uh, you know do i think it will come back i do i think that you know I don't think it'll be six months, though, because I think we're going to be living through the rest of 2020, even when cities open up and small businesses can get back out there. So the rules around them uh, are going to be you know, new territory to
0: maneuver. Yeah, well, you know, that's a uh, you, you lay something out there in terms of these the, the, uh, the tenacity and the drive of these small business owners and that being key to the upside. So it leads me to leadership because you've had so much experience with CEOs of, comp- of all sorts of size companies from Fortune 500 and you the know, uh, board of Apple, maybe one of the big, not maybe one of the biggest companies in the world. What, what from your vantage point or a couple of common elements of successful leadership both now and then coming out of this?
1: Well, let's start with humility. Um, I think we, you know, we don't know more then we do know, um, and I think leaders uh, embracing that uh, is critical because what that does is allow for um, a reimagination that you know not everything we did was was right before COVID 19, and it maybe hopefully accelerates a, a reassessment, um, a recommitment. But I think all companies have to uh, you know reimagine everything from how they're going to work. What is the, you know, I was reading something about, you know, everybody's getting so used to working at home. What does office productivity look like? Are people really feeling that they need to um, re-space their people in the same kind of, you know, so there's just thousands of questions, but every leader has to look at, you know, from a people point of view, supply chain, cash, you know, and then community. But I I think it's reimagining it. I think the empathetic leadership uh, that understands and places community at the front of it. One of the things that I've been proud of with all the board leaders that I've been working with is, you know, the extraordinary uh, commitment to community. $100 million of food, uh, soap and everything commit, committed by Unilever. I mean, all that Apple's done in terms of 10 million masks and um, their commitment to work on uh, contract tracing and and everything else. I mean, I think that the it's always been important but i i think we're realizing right now that uh that this is a um a war that can't be won without extraordinarily humble leaders leaders who are placing community first who are doing the right thing and who can reimagine a new normal that none of us have really seen before
0: well that leads me uh to uh, maybe we can close on um uh uh your optimistic note uh for everybody here and i just <laughs> here. Uh, to- I
1: mean I, I, it's been an interesting time i think for all of us because i think there are things that have just been so obviously hard to deal with and daunting um and you know in our case at, at grameen we've lost 18 of our precious lives of our members in the last 10 days so it, it, and it's new york but also in Charlotte and in Los Angeles so that that has been extraordinarily hard for us but on the other hand um, I just give I just throw this out you know we had a model where we had thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs meeting every single week it's been part of the model and we had to pivot because obviously because of social distancing we had to eliminate the meetings so imagine 2450 zoom calls with 30 entrepreneurs each going on every single week in 15 cities and we have 91 percent attendance and they want to be connected um they are afraid their businesses are challenged they don't know how they're going to make may and june rent greg but they are connecting because it is not human nature to be isolated they are uh grateful for the opportunity to have that connection, to have that just peer support and you know sharing, and uh, trying to inspire each other. You know, some of them are sewing masks for each other. Some of them are learning how to pivot to being online when they've never done that before. One of them taught the other how to do takeout and delivery, um, and just kind of take a screenshot of their menu and put it up and, and text it to all of. Their customers if they didn't have a website and I mean it sounds like little things but it's that human spirit uh, it's truly been inspiring even in a tough time so um, it, like I said people aren't meant to be isolated they're meant to help each other and I, I get to see it um, times 10,000. and that that is uh, that makes me optimistic in the in the human spirit that that is what's going to get us through this.
0: That's a great uh, a great close. So thank you so much, Andrea. Uh, that was terrific. Uh, thank going you, Greg. To, uh, pivot to uh, to Paul Miners. Uh, Paul, uh, welcome and uh, good afternoon or good evening in your part of the world. Good evening, Greg. Uh, thanks for being here, Paul. Um, you're one of the um, uh, the most global of uh, of leaders uh, uh, around and uh, have insight uh, uh, on a broad basis. Uh, so we're going to tap some of that here and uh, but maybe ask you to start by talking a little bit about the current state of the whole COVID-19 world in the UK. Seems as if the government there is having uh, some of the debate that is obviously taking place here as well. So maybe you could just uh, uh, fill uh, fill us in on uh, the, the UK perspective from your vantage point.
2: Thank you very much, Greg. And first, may I extend my very best wishes to all the clients and people at Rockefeller Capital Management doing this extraordinary difficult time. Uh, My prayers are with all of you. We didn't uh, start uh, COVID-19 in a great way here in the UK. We had early notice in that we could see what was happening in Iran and Italy, but we didn't really pick up the warning. We had a health system which was operating pretty close to capacity already and we had monetary and fiscal policies which were also more consistent with how you would address an upcoming recession than an economy which was performing pretty well. Um, we were short on testing, we we're short on personal protective equipment, uh, we were uh, short on ventilators and intensive care unit capacity. So the government's policy initially uh, was to go um, for herd immunity, essentially to control the rate at which the coronavirus uh, spread through the uh, community, um, the take-up of COVID-19 being suppressed so that it was aligned with uh, capacity in the uh, hospital uh, sector. But uh, they then began to look more closely at the data, particularly from Imperial College London, uh, and they realized that this could easily lead to a quarter of a million deaths. And that was something which the government wasn't willing, willing to do. So they then pivoted um, and uh, we went to lockdown. We're now in our fifth week of lockdown. Uh, Compliance with the lockdown has been higher than had been expected. Um, But the benefits of lockdown are still not showing through in a decline in uh, infection rates. The RO number still uh, hangs above one. Um, Death rates are high, particularly amongst the elderly and in care homes. The big issue for government now, Greg, is when do we come out of this? And the government is like any government I've served in government that doesn't have a unified view internally there are lots of discussions and debates uh, and it's a debate between the health lobby who say no we're not going to relax on distancing and everything else uh, until we really see that RO number come down below one uh, and we are absolutely clear we have capacity to handle and to uh, test and to track Uh, and those on the other side who say the damage to the economy, the scarring of the economy and business is so great that we have to get the economy going and accept a continuing level of infection and indeed death.
0: That's, uh, you know, we're, we're having a lot of that here, uh, uh, as you know. Um, uh, Paul, can we um, uh, extend onto the continent where you also have uh, a have, uh, tremendous amount of experience? Um, Uh, Germany first, Uh, they seem to have uh, handled this pretty well and they may be the first Western country on a path to normalcy. Can you comment a little bit on on, uh, how things are progressing there and is it as optimistic as as it comes across now?
2: Well, it's all relative. Um, Germany uh, was in a stronger position from day one. Uh, it's always spent a higher proportion of GDP on health care than other European countries. It has a strong diagnostic and testing industry uh, and a very mature industrial base which is capable of uh, amending output to meet the needs that have been driven by coronavirus for ventilators and and, and such equipment so um, Germany has the lowest death rate uh, in Europe per million population uh, and there is now talk of coming out of their form of lockdown which is I would describe as a as, as a semi-hard form of lockdown not as hard as in Italy or or, uh, UK or in uh, uh, Spain Um, but they're talking about coming out of it. Angela Merkel is putting up warning signs she said be very careful we need to avoid a second wave Uh, we need to be absolutely sure that um, that we have gone past the inflection point in terms of the spread of the virus and we need to keep in mind that returning to full economic output is unlikely to occur until such time as either we have national herd immunity that the rate of those who've had infection and have now shaken it off is so great and a likelihood of them catching it again uh, is very low or we have a vac- vaccine so Angela merkel is saying look be careful but the social pressure business pressure to get uh, to get the economy moving again
0: paul could we uh, that's uh, very insightful can we move to uh, sweden uh, uh yeah. and, and can you talk a little bit about uh I mean, they are are on the vanguard, and and they actually, as you said, it was where the UK in the beginning seemed to uh, debate going. They've gone there, and they're digging in around it. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, your perspectives? And I know you, you you've done both both business, and you've been there a lot uh, over the years. Is it is it working? And are the Swedes going to have gone in a different direction than almost everybody else in the world, and succeed in doing that? The Swedes
2: have adopted a very different policy. There's no lockdown. The bars, the restaurants, uh, the cinemas are still open. um, People are still mingling uh socially playing sports in parks etc and uh the Swedes argue this is in part a function of their society there is uh it's a very democratic country it doesn't like being told what to do the Swedes believe they know what to do so they wouldn't react well to a more formal lockdown of the sort we've seen in France or the UK with people being arrested for uh, being on the streets But, Greg, um, I go to Sweden a lot, and I've got a lot of Swedish friends, it's really hard, it's not clear that this is working. Uh, And uh, Anders Tegnell, the Chief Medical Officer, and Stefan Löfven, the Prime Minister, are showing uh, some anxiety. The death rate in uh, Sweden per million of population um, is three times higher than Denmark, eight times higher than Finland and Norway. But 40 percent of the population in Stockholm is now believed uh, to have had COVID, Um, so perhaps they are at the darkest hour, Uh, but um, there's there's a lot of serious questioning going on in Sweden as to whether their policy is right. But as I say they're different, they have uh, more people living in single family units, it's a more rural country, Um, it has a low population density, and so this Policy may make sense for an environment like Sweden or, or, or Norway or Iceland where it wouldn't work in a heavily populated country uh, like uh, Italy or Spain.
0: Yeah, I saw I was listening to, to one of the ministers uh, might have been the, the one of the senior health ministers today um, who was saying uh, let's look at uh, when, when this is all over and we look back at, at death rates and things like that they think their strategy will have um, stood up against uh, everybody else and, and on, on, the, on both the, the math and, um, you know, the overall efficacy. They will have managed to end up with a similar result in terms of the, the, uh, the disease and how deadly it was uh, and yeah. at the same time not have shut their economy. He was saying when you look back on this, they think uh, they, they will have uh, their approach and maybe there are unique aspects to it, but they think their approach will have worked even statistically.
2: I think there are a lot of fingers being crossed when they say that they 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 look more nervous to me. When I speak to my friends in Sweden, there is more anxiety.
0: Yeah, well, you know that that if we if we uh, take try to put it all together, Paul. And this is one of the things that you and I have had many conversations around uh, the EU. Uh, and and you know, you got these national responses uh, to to this uh, this uh, you know deadly crisis. And the EU, from a policy standpoint, as far as I can tell, uh, you know, I, I haven't heard of a, of a EU policy. It's Germany's and Sweden's and the UK and Spain and Italy. Um, yep. Does the EU survive? I mean, if, if you have a, a pandemic of this magnitude and the governing body uh, is virtually silent and, it's, and, and you've gone back to national views, can it survive uh, at the end of this? And you've got a lot of insight on this. Well, you're right in your observations, uh,
2: Greg. Um, this is a, 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 a crisis that has been addressed on individual national levels. Uh, competent national governments have felt that that is their responsibility, not the responsibility of Brussels. Um, public health is not what the EU describes as a competence. It's not an area where the EU seeks to achieve Across Europe uh, policy, um, but it does seek to um, uh, advance coordination and cooperation. Uh, But to date, that's not really happened. European countries have been in competition for each other to get testing devices, um, to get uh, the necessary agents, uh, and for uh, PPE personal protection um, equipment. So, this is not a celebrated achievement for the EU, but the, the mothers of the EU would say, well, that's not what we ever expected to, to do. Where the EU will, but I think, be more visible uh, is around exit strategies and also managing the huge public sector debt Uh, that's um, being created as a result of this. This is is an area where the EU will get involved in fiscal policy uh, and uh, across uh, Europe, and the EU is wrestling with the age-old problem of the rich northern countries in the EU being reluctant to give financial support to the southern countries, Greece, Italy, and Spain, Portugal, which are the ones that have suffered worst of all uh in europe so there's some big challenges there but i wouldn't put it as the end of the eu but but those who are really optimistic about the eu must be very disappointed that the eu has not taken a more prominent role here
0: yes um i think no question but uh as you said i think paul actually you just nailed it on, on the head it, It'll be how they they manage to take care of the southern countries that have been more directly and and, and comprehensively affected from an economic standpoint as they come out of this. That that's going to be one of the big tasks that that will uh, you know move it forward as an entity. Yep. Um, Paul, if we shift to a, another topic that uh, that we've spent a lot of time on, uh, and that's um, uh, uh, the the whole ESG world and um, uh, uh, and, and the move to, in particular, in Europe, and you've been you've seen a lot of this on the forefront, having run asset management companies and still being involved uh, in the in the financial space uh, on, on boards and, uh, uh, and across the landscape. Uh, what do you think about COVID nineteen and the impact on on ESG and the the real secular rise in Europe, which we thought was coming and I think still coming in the U.S. You know, and and, and also beyond that, beyond the investing landscape. Uh, why don't we start with the investing landscape, then we can talk about uh, COVID-19 and uh, and climate change more generally.
2: Well, uh, firstly on the investing landscape, I think we have to recognize this is a seismic shock. I was appointed a finance minister in the UK uh, on the threshold of the global financial crisis, and that seemed big at the time. Uh, this is altogether more comprehensive. This is having a deep effect on people's feelings about themselves, and about the future so there'll be profound impacts on how we conduct our lives as Andrea was saying earlier and that will have sectoral implications for investment Uh, secondly we have to cope with the probability I would say high probability of global recession um, and thirdly, we have to do that in the context where we know monetary policy is really stretched uh, and has been even more stretched by these initiatives and how they're going to be funded. So this is a, a very complex and challenging background. But I believe that this near-death experience that the world is going through will hopefully make us realize that collective action to address threats where we have a common interest, which is clearly what's happened around the coronavirus, also apply in other areas, including climate change. And I think ESG will continue to be a very prominent agenda item for the corporate sector.
0: And and Paul, are you, um, optimistic uh on on the uh the 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 world learning from uh how much better collective action can be on something that we all share like covid 19 are you optimistic that uh, those lessons will will are, are are so are driven so deeply in this because of the magnitude of the challenges that that there will be progress on on, uh, climate change? Well,
2: that's part of my thesis, uh, Greg. I hope that something good will come out of this. But if we look back to the last major pandemic, the uh, Spanish flu uh, in um, 2018, which killed 50 million people, which is a big number, which was an even bigger percentage of the then population of Western Europe, one of the most profound consequences, that was a a decline in trust, uh, a drawing into localised communities, um, less sense of working together collectively. I hope that won't happen. I hope that we will recognise the need for more resilience, self-sufficiency, to build in capacity for margin of error, to utilise the benefits of technology, to become comfortable with the borderline between technology and privacy uh, will all uh, be very positive factors. We're going to need to onshore much more, uh, Greg. We cannot live in a world where we rely upon China for 90% of our antibiotics. America has to come to terms with the fact that the digital message that's come out of coronavirus uh, that we're going to make more and more use of digital communications as opposed to going to shops or to the office, needs to recognize it, it doesn't have leadership in the 5G area at all. How's it going to cope with that? Um, is it going to buy foreign companies or is it going to power public investment program? So there are lots of big challenges out there but I believe in the fundamental goodness right? like uh, uh, Andrea was saying that you know we will come through this and Andrea, Andrea's uh, female Entrepreneurs will win through, and I think hope that uh, that uh, that will apply to uh, other sectors of society as well.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's a great theme too, Paul, because we've spent some time on it, and and you you, you highlighted a couple of the the, the changes that uh, that are going to happen that you see coming. Um, maybe spend a little bit more time on uh, long-term consequences. Uh, uh, you know, coming out of uh, COVID-19 crisis, the 90% antibiotics was a fascinating statistic. Uh, but what are some of the other things that will change and will change for a long period of time? I mean, the an analogy on the September 11th was uh, uh, airport security everywhere changed and has, has not gone back. And then, you know, the, the actual security on planes and the way things uh, take place on planes, it, it did change on a fundamental basis, you know, literally forever. So what are some of the other things that you see? Because you spend a lot of time thinking about this.
2: Well, I'd like to hope that the fact it hasn't changed, it means that it's actually achieving something. When I wait in those long queues to be searched, I'm not absolutely convinced that (laughs) my travel is going to be a whole lot safer. Um, I think rather than the word change, Greg, I I would say that there's always change taking place in society. And COVID will probably speed up the delta of change in some areas. Uh, I think the the outlook for some sectors like uh, travel and hospitality is, is, is just not going to get better uh, in the very near term. We're going to become much more home focused. Um, the outlook for real estate, uh, commercial real estate in prime business areas is going to come under challenge. Uh, we're going to see much more investment in five G technology and in robotics, uh, onshoring businesses and product which is currently sourced from uh, the developing world. If that's going to come back into Europe, into the United States, uh, it's not going to be reflected in uh, labor, employment rates, or pay. It's going to be re- reflected in the replacement of hands by um, machines um so uh i when i look at an investment portfolio and that's what we do at rockefeller we're constantly assessing risks and seeking out opportunities um i say to myself well how do this, some of these big things um play out in terms of portfolio opportunities and risks and the other big thing risk uh, greg is this this scale of government debt um i think we're going to move towards um, increased comfort with monetization of government debt. The central bank essentially creating economic resource, what's described now as modern monetary um, theory. We're seeing that with QE. Um, QE is one step away. QE risk levels have now been further lowered. Um, Central banks are buying um, low investment grade paper. It's not much further away from saying this debt burden we can't look upon it as we would look upon household budgeting uh, we're going to have to monetize this so i would say um that the risk of inflation three to five years out um is high now, i say risk actually it's an opportunity It'll probably lead to a, another asset bubble but those are the sort of things as, as somebody who spent a lot of time trying to help people with uh, look after their inheritances and 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 their and, uh, uh, accumulated savings—the so sort of things that are on my agenda at the moment, which I'm debating uh, with my colleagues, including my colleagues in the absolutely excellent uh, investment unit, uh, Rockefeller.
0: That's excellent, <laughs> Paul. Uh, that was—I uh, uh, would—I would ask you to end on an optimistic note, but I'm going to take that ending. Uh, it was such an, a nice way to wrap. Uh, so <laughs> thank you, uh, thank you very much uh, indeed. Uh, uh um, wishes to everybody. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Marty uh, Minion, uh, welcome and good afternoon to you.
3: Thank, thanks, Greg, and uh, thanks for having me. I do feel a little like a person at a rehearsal dinner getting up after two great toasts and now having to give my own
0: toast. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, I'm <laughs> uh, I'm optimistic. I do agree with you. They were two great toasts, but we're about to put the third one up there. So um, uh, let's start, uh, uh, Marty, on on. Uh, on an area that you have a tremendous amount of insight into, uh, uh, and and, um, and and some particular insight that I don't think is readily apparent unless you're involved in the businesses, uh, the impact of COVID-19 on different spaces, uh, you know, like health insurance and some of the things that uh, you know I've spent a lot of time talking about.
1: Yeah, so Greg, we, you know,
3: at Summit we invest in three main areas: technology, healthcare, primarily healthcare services, and then growth buyouts, which are uh, generally financial services and b2c businesses and across those three sectors we, we've seen some pretty dramatic changes with COVID-19 in the tech space um you know we've lived through the last five years of companies uh, losing a lot of money primarily to acquire customers and now what we're seeing in in our tech companies is they're cutting back on the money they're spending to acquire customers and they're actually spending as much to retain their existing customers, because um, uh, what they've seen is the payback on trying to acquire customers in this environment, new customers is is, is fairly low, and they realize that the lifeblood of their business is, is to maintain cash flow, and in order to do that, they have to retain customers. Um, in the healthcare space, it's been really interesting because um, it's probably the one sector of the economy that um, that is is secretly doing fairly well, exception of hospitals who are you know, swamped with with related issues but providers who took risk so who accepted a payment to manage a population are doing extraordinary extraordinarily well in this environment and the reason they're doing extraordinarily well is because when you take risk you're essentially uh, taking utilization risk and everywhere you read is people have, have stopped on all sorts of elective procedures these providers are still getting paid, but they're not really having to deliver services. Uh, the providers that are getting killed are the traditional fees, fee-for-service providers, the dentists and the plastic surgeons who you know, relied on people showing up because they wanted to spend some money to improve their appearance or or, or, or have a procedure that wasn't entirely necessary. The other place in, in health has just boomed is telemedicine. Um, we had actually a company called LifeStance that we sold last week, despite the, the COVID crisis, primarily because we had 2,000 uh, mental health providers that, in the last 60 days, in the first 60 days of the crisis, we transitioned from having office visits to 100% telemedicine. And the business, was, which was growing 20% to start, looks like it's going to grow 40% now because there's higher demand for mental health services, and we've made it easier for people to access. The, the third space is just the growth buyout area. And, and um, the thing we're seeing there is everybody's rethinking their supply chain, um, particularly business to consumer companies. If you think about it, they've been, hit, they've been hit twice by the COVID crisis because what happened in January, China shut down. So anybody who sourced products in China had, had a real supply issue. And then when it hit the US, the, 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 the supply chain from China opened up but the customer demand in the U.S. died. So people are taking a hard look. A lot of our companies of you know, do we need to move our supply chain and should we move it onshore? Um, so I think it's going to lead to some pretty interesting um, decisions as far as where you manufacture things and where you source products because um, right now folks are getting getting crushed pretty badly.
0: Yeah, and Marty, on the on the last point, that, that you know, the traditional uh, thought there, at least... Um you know, uh, before the last six weeks was that uh, the supply chain, you know, people are are going to move it out of China into Vietnam or something like that. But now it's a a different mindset, isn't it? It's, as you said, maybe onshore here or or a lot closer, right?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, people, everybody was thinking we'll move to Asia or to Africa because of cheaper labor. But they're realizing that um, if your supply chain gets disrupted and it's halfway around the world, um, it's not going to do you a lot of good that it's cheaper. So I think people are trying to figure out, can they move it closer to the U.S. or into North America? And, you know, can they use automation um, to try to lower their costs uh, so that they can get easier access to
0: product? It's, it's not dissimilar from the theme. I mean, Paul, Paul raised antibiotics because it's antibiotics, but uh, you know, there, there is going to be a lot of, uh, even beyond essential, a lot of uh, manufacturing that takes place a lot closer to, in, you know, to home markets, wherever those home markets are, given what's happened here.
3: You, you should believe that. I mean, you, you, you know, for years, people were talking about raw earth materials and how China cornered the market on that. And that's critical to our technology industry. And I, you know, I think you're going to see stuff like that get reconsidered on how do we get better control of, Supplies, because once the supply chain gets disrupted, the industry's just you know they they have a hard time operating.
0: Yeah, uh, Marty, let's uh, let's talk about this versus 2008 because uh, you had a front row seat in 2008 credit crisis as well with a whole uh, you know a whole different series of portfolio companies. What's different from your vantage point, private equity, you know uh, uh, businesses that you invest in and own across the three spaces you just talked about? How was 2008 different from today? Well, the, the big the big
3: change, Greg, is the speed and severity of the change. Um, uh, certain industries just ground to a halt. Uh, in 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 a week or two, you went from operating close to budget to being 20 or 30% off budget. Um, this, the second is the, the severity. What what um, you know in our shop we will ask our analysts to do deep downside scenarios and during 08 you would get the typical Excel model that showed down 10 down 20. Now you're running Excel models that show down 50 down 70. Um, and that just makes decisions. You have to make them much quicker and makes them much harder. Because if you, if your revenue drops by 50%, you're going to have a hard time surviving. You just have to really take an ax to expenses. The other thing that we, we've seen is. Um, Our good companies are getting caught up in this as much as our bad companies. 2008, it was really a liquidity driven recession. And so the the poorly run companies with weak balance sheets went into the, slid down much quicker than the well-run companies with strong balance sheets. Right now, what you're seeing is is a a very good company if they're operating in the wrong, wrong end market, they're getting killed. We have a great example of that in our portfolio where we have a company that is the largest distributor of restaurant parts, restaurant supply parts um, in the United States. Great business, CEOs had 25 straight quarters of growth, strongly profitable, great gross margin, a business you'd love to own for, for 20 years. Um, but right now, his end customer is disappearing. So we're having to take some actions, some fairly strong actions, to make sure that we're around when things come out of the crisis, so it's just it's just not affecting only our bad businesses, and 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 we're looking at all of our companies and saying, hey, how long do we think this is going to last? And if we think it's going to last a long time, how much more capital are we willing to to put behind our good companies?
0: That's a really uh, uh, fascinating and challenging aspect of this this time. Uh... To, as it, if you're in a space that's been directly affected, even if you ran a great company, you're affected. Uh, and, and, and the speed is, you know, it, it's something that uh, other than this specific issue, you couldn't have anticipated. So it's just, uh, that, that's gotta be very difficult. Uh, Marty, when, when we look forward, um, uh, you know, to, to, to keep the 2008 analogy, after two thousand and eight, during and after, I'm not sure about the specific time of some of these myself, but I know it was in and around that time. Airbnb, Uber, all sorts of companies were started. and 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 you know the the people who look at things like this say part of the reason is because, back to Andrea's points, and Paul was uh, reinforcing some of this as well, people change. You know some businesses are are, are knocked out. There are people who might be. Uh, uh, out of work, who decide uh, I, they see an opportunity and then they go after it. So there seems to be a burst of innovation coming out of times like this as well. Do you think we're going to see that again? Will there be a wave of new businesses that are formed? Uh, you know, as we start to to pull out of this and return to more of a normal economic state?
3: Oh, absolutely, Greg. I mean, we, you know, I I started in the private equity business in '85, so we, you know, I lived through '88, I lived through the bubble burst in 01. I lived through um, 9-11. I lived through, you know, uh, 08. And uh, I mean, and, and what you, you see is, is um, people start to look at the world differently. And that's what's great about American entrepreneurs is they, they're not beholden to the old ways. They look at new ways to, to, to reinvent themselves. And then they, they, because of our private equity system and a venture capital system, they can raise capital to, to, to attack the problem. I think what you're gonna see, um, it's gonna be a little different this time, is a lot more money is gonna be poured, poured into biotech and healthcare data tools. Um, because if you think about it, uh, what's happened in the biotech business has been the development of a lot of tools and methodologies that's made it much cheaper to, to uh, develop drugs. And right now the world has essentially a, a, a healthcare crisis where we're saying to people, "Hey, listen, um, it's going to take us a, a year to figure out how how to develop a, 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 something to deal with this virus. Then it make it may take us two years to manufacture that. And and if you think about any other industry in the world, whether it's you know the airline industry when it started, if you said to people, "Hey, listen, something went wrong with that plane. It, it, it's going to take us a year to figure out what went wrong and two years to fix it." No one would ever get in a plane again. Um, and so what people are going to look at now is say, why does this take so long? And I think you're going to see a lot of investment in drug development, biotech, to try and, and in, in data, just to try to figure out how do we move faster to address issues like we're living through now. The other area we're going to see a ton of investment is, is cybersecurity, um, more and more people going online, more and more people automated, and the bad guys never sleep. And they're, you know, they're constantly trying to figure out ways to penetrate systems and, and, and take advantage of people's personal information. You're going to see continued investment there. And then lastly, you know, artificial intelligence is going to continue to be a focus of, of a lot of private equity firms and a lot of venture firms because you can automate and make processes much more efficient. And given where, what this crisis has done to um, industries, they're going to be looking at ways to to become more efficient and take costs out.
0: You know, and 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 you have uh, uh, if we if we extrapolate from that back up to the whole private equity industry, you've got this notion of uh, uh, you know uh, uh, billions, tens of billions of dollars of dry powder in the hands of private equity firms, um, and and uh, everybody wondering when and and uh, and, and what places uh, they'll start to put the money to work. You just listed a whole bunch of places. Um, you know, will that happen in a relatively near-term time frame, or how does the private equity industry itself adapt and respond to this? Are they going to be focused on existing portfolio companies for the foreseeable future, or are they going to start to immediately position uh, and, and look for businesses like the ones you just described and, 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 uh, and start jumping in? So, Greg,
3: I think the numbers, um, if you look at at this, about $2 trillion of dry powder in the private equity business. And, and, and um, for the last few years, about $20 billion has, has been invested per month. So you're $240 billion a year, and, and so you have about 10 years of dry powder out there, a little, you know, 8 to 10 years. Um, what's happened in the past crises is obviously the investment pace has slowed, and people think, you know, 50%, so maybe only $10 billion goes out instead of 20 for the foreseeable future till we come out of this. The second thing that you see is um, people will try to make opportunistic investments, um, highly structured investments in in various companies. And by that, I mean, if you look at 2008, the folks who did extraordinarily well coming out of 2008 were people who moved up the balance sheet. They bought the debt of their portfolio companies or they bought the debt of other private equity portfolio companies at a steep discount and they either ended up owning those businesses, or they ended up watching the businesses recover and getting getting their debt back at par. The second thing that happened in in, um, uh, in the private equity industry in 2008, and you're gonna see you're seeing it now, is um, uh, people move up the balance sheet to try to get a slightly better investment. Um, and what they're willing to do is to trade two dollars of upside for a dollar downside protection. And you saw that in the Airbnb announcement the other day. You know, Airbnb raised a billion dollars in a 10% note with warrants at somewhere around an $18 billion valuation versus their $30 billion valuations they raised money prior at. Now, if, if Airbnb recovers, which is a debate whether it will or it won't, but if it recovers, um, uh, that will turn out to be a good deal, probably a double or something for the investors but they, they they may not have gotten compensated for, for the risk they took in this current environment, but they protected their downside because they've moved up the balance sheet. They're in front of all the other private equity capital that went in and therefore, you know most private equity investors, that's where they'll stick their toe back in the water. And then lastly, on the portfolio, what we're all doing is we're sitting there and we're, we're basically trying to categorize our companies, which are, these are the companies that are just great businesses even if, the, if, they're, if they're suffering right now, they're great businesses, they have great market share, they have high gross margins, and we want to make sure that, that we, we, we support them any way we can. And then the bottom end of the stack are the companies that they were weak and they probably weren't performing, and we, we probably need to change out management and we, you know, we may not be willing to support them to the level um, that they're looking for, and we should advise them to go out and try to find capital in other places.
0: That was uh, terrific, Marty. Uh, uh, Thank you uh, very much, Marty. Uh, Thank you, uh, Andrea, Paul, Marty, uh, for the uh, exceptional insight. Uh, This is reflective of the unique proprietary thinking we're looking to bring to our clients at Rockefeller Capital Management. We're particularly proud uh, to have uh, three uh, individuals as accomplished as Andrea, Paul, and Marty Uh, also be board members of Rockefeller Capital Management this second week running. We've been able to do that. So many thanks uh, to all three of you. Um, As always, uh, I would like to close with a quotation that is hopefully both thought-provoking and inspiring for all. Uh, The timing on on this one versus last week isn't perfect for Mr. Miners because uh, last week I did have Winston Churchill. Uh, Actually, uh, Jack Brennan did, and then I echoed it. But this week I'm going with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, maybe appropriately, who said during the Great Depression, and I quote for all here, there is a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations much is given, of other generations much is expected. This generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. And he was speaking obviously in the 1930s. So I would like to take a little bit of license and add an addendum to FDR's quote that I think is relevant for today's world and will end on the optimistic note that Andrea, Paul and Marty all hit in their comments as well. It's clear to me that to this generation of Americans, both things are true. Much has been given, but also much is expected. And I believe that we are not only collectively grateful for all the advantages we've been given, but also capable of meeting and exceeding the expectations that are being set by the significant and unique challenges of today. So from all of us at Rockefeller Capital Management, please enjoy the weekend, stay healthy, safe, and upbeat. We look forward to talking with you again next Friday when we welcome David Rubenstein, the Founder and Co-Executive Chairman of the Carlyle Group. Stay well, all the best.